coaches shouldn't underestimate the impact that you have lifelong uh, on these kids when they come back and they and they reminisce and they visit. We have a very uh, crucial time during their lives to have a resounding uh, and long-lasting impact on them. So don't take that for granted. Um, there's not too many people to have this type of opportunity to to mentor young athletes and, and men and women on a daily basis uh, and it can it can truly make a big difference in their lives sports science strength and conditioning high performance coaching welcome to the decoding excellence show Today's show is brought to you by Vaud Performance. If you haven't checked out the website yet, stop this show immediately. Head over to the website, vaudperformance.com, and begin immediately looking through the resources. They're the makers of the Nord Board, the Dashboard, the Groin Bar, and they are some incredibly smart minds in the world of performance technology, tools, rehabilitation, and performance evaluations. Whether it is performance training, testing, evaluation, screening, or just simply return to play protocols from a pre-benchmarking, pre- and post-injury, check them out. They are incredibly smart guys and they will equip your facility with the tools that you need to be successful. Thank you again for the support and please check out their website, vaudperformance.com. Today on the Decoding Excellence Show, we have Coach Ryan Horn, athletic performance coach for Wake Forest men's basketball. In this episode, we discuss everything from technology to performance training to basketball-specific training to mentoring and growing a staff and various lessons that Coach Horn learned in his coaching journey from different stops all along uh, his coaching pathway. This was a great show. Personally, I took four pages worth of notes and uh, and still reflect back on them. Um, there were some really resounding and resonating topics that he shared. So I know you don't want to miss this show. This was a great one, and you're going to be a better coach for listening to what Coach Horn has to say. So without further ado, here is my conversation with great coach, Ryan Horn. Coach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. you got some tough acts to follow. You've been doing a great job with this podcast. So I'm looking forward to try to contribute here and help everybody out. Yeah, I, look, I appreciate it. You're a tough man to track down and uh, certainly a busy guy, especially with uh, sort of off-season, postseason basketball and sort of the, the demands that that all entails. But uh, I'm finally glad that we could connect online and, and share a conversation. I've been looking forward to having yarn uh look man for for everybody that is living under a rock or uh you know isn't online for any sort of social media standpoints or just haven't been to a conference which you know you, you tend to go to a lot of them uh can you give a an updated background to what you're currently up to and sort of paint the picture for a young coach getting into the field that's trying to figure out more about who this Ryan Horn coach is? Yeah, so I'm currently the director of basketball performance at Wake Forest University. Um, work prim- primarily with men's basketball and o- also oversee our facilities here. So that, that that's my current role. Um, oversee one assistant, AJ Kerr, who's phenomenal, uh, who's our assistant director of basketball performance uh, that works directly with me as well. Um, so I believe we have a young, hungry, passionate staff that's trying to progress and move forward and, and do everything we can to make our athletes better. Um, before I was, uh, before I arrived at Wake Forest, 
Um, I was an assistant director of strength and conditioning at the University of Tulsa. Um, worked with a gamut of teams all the way from football to men's and women's basketball, soccer, softball, um, so on and so forth. So that was a pretty, pretty unique um, experience to have an opportunity to work with a multitude of teams, um, head coaching personalities, so on and so forth. So that was a, a pretty uh, impactful um, time of my career um, that kind of ultimately led to this, this position here. And then before that, I was at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, I was there for five years. I did my master's there, um, received my master's there, also did my graduate assistantship uh, and was a full-time assistant. So that was kind of an organic process as well. And before that, um, I interned at Robert Morris University um, and Liberty University. So that's kind of been my past, so to speak. I've been blessed to not have a ton of stops. Um, I've been blessed not to have been fired yet. Um, I've heard that you, uh, you're not a real coach until you get fired. I hope I'm never a real coach. Um, but um, I've been lucky to kind of be in spots that allowed me to kind of grow um, along as I became more of a professional um, and more experienced in my craft. I think those stops have, have fostered that growth. So that's kind of my updated bio. Certainly a comprehensive uh, resume, if you will. But to fill in the pictures a little bit, I'd love to hear about your journey going from VCU to finding uh, your opportunities at TASA and how the TASA experience changed and eventually led you to, uh, to the time that you spent now here working at Wake Forest. Could you paint the picture for that? So basically how it worked is uh, when I was at Virginia Commonwealth University, I never really worked um, directly or had any oversight of a basketball program. I assist with both men's and women's basketball uh, during my time at VCU. And then what actually happened was there's a job that opened up at the University of Tulsa um, to work with football uh, and men's basketball primarily. Um, So then I had the opportunity to take that position Um, when I actually worked for my first head coach. Uh, that was a basketball coach at University of Tulsa. Then he was actually fired. Um, and then Coach Manning came in my second year at Tulsa. Um, and that's kind of it's all history from there. So uh, Coach Manning took me uh, to Wake Forest with him. Um, and I'm blessed that he that he made that decision. I am just fascinated with the work that you've been doing. And, and the, the thing that really resonates with me is just the transparency in what you share and what you show to other coaches in the industry, which is sometimes I think, uh, you know, like if there's any sort of trade secrets, if we want to even call them that, that uh, you're you're one of the good guys in the field that literally this is what we do. Boom. Here it is right on a table and you can sort of be invited into training sessions Uh you know, and that's sort of my first foray into some of the work that you've been doing at uh, at Wake Forest. But and we're going to get into that, I think, th- throughout this show. But I'd really love to start to explore a little bit about the coach behind the coach, the person behind the whistle and how you became interested as we all share a similar journey into physical preparation or strength and conditioning. But what if you can remember, I mean, anything from high school to to your own sort of collegiate careers, like how did you first become interested in strength and conditioning and what was the genesis behind that idea? I actually decided I want to be a strength conditioning coach my freshman year of high school. Uh, I went to a uh, football camp at the University of Kentucky. Um, and while I was there, you had an opportunity to spend time in the weight room uh, with the coaching staff. And my brother uh, had been a, a bodybuilder and hadn't been in the weight room. And so I kind of caught that iron bug early. Um, but I remember speaking to that coach and uh, I was like, so this is kind of what you do for a living. 
And he's like, he's like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, I love what we do, you know, blah, 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 so on and so forth. So even though it was a very brief um, conversation and a very brief moment in time, uh, that moment created a lot of momentum uh, and, and motivation moving forward um, to pursue this field and, perf- and really pursue this profession. So I've known what I've wanted to do since I was, you know, 14 years old. Um, and, and everything from that, that point on to, was to try to get me to this point, um, to call myself a coach, um, and to be blessed and have the opportunity to be a, you know, a strength conditioning coach has been something I've wanted, um, for as long as I can remember. Um, so that was kind of a pivotal moment in my career. And then from that point forward, I love training. I embrace the preparation side of things, um, all throughout high school, even during my short, um, collegiate career. And I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, this is what I was built to do. Um, and once I kind of made that decision, the rest has kind of been history. And that's kind of been my motivation moving forward. That's, you know, the more people I, I chat with and have these conversations about sort of the genesis of how they got into strength and conditioning and what was that driving motivation. It's always, you know, it, it's the similar theme or thread in that. You know, there's someone in their life pretty early on that sort of exposed them to the opportunity of uh, of pursuing a, a career in strength conditioning, and I'm no exception. But, you know, I went to a a, uh, a junior prep wrestling camp at Ohio State, and Anthony Glass walked out and showed us how to clean for the first time. Brief introduction, like we probably all have uh, participating in strength conditioning or sports specific camps, and we invite the strength coach out. He's going to share a little bit about nutrition or training, and and maybe show you a couple of developmental lifts. And at that time it was, uh, the snatch and clean and per, uh, clean and jerk for me. And I was like, I, I didn't even know strength and conditioning was a pathway that people could go down, that people could develop a professional, uh, career in this. And, uh, that's, that's fascinating that we sort of share that same, uh, that same story in, in some respects. When, when you think back to your sort of high school and just I athletics or, or, you know, as you're developing, I mean, what were, what were the thoughts? So you, you said that you were, you know, like you gravitated to the performance and the training aspects from it. Did performance train, like did the actual sport performance, did that come natural? Did you use training to help supplement your talent levels? I mean, what really sort of inspired you to pursue the the developmental aspects of it. And I have my own stories, but I'm just I'm fascinated to hear about sort of your your pathway into it. I think for me, um, the preparation point not only served and, and improved my abilities to play um, the variety of sports that I participated in, but it was also a place for me um, as everybody knows during high school, you're trying to find yourself all throughout college and you're doing that, but it was somewhere where I, it just felt right to me. Um, it, it made me feel whole. Um, it was a passion of mine and it was something that I, I derived self-confidence from, uh, and how I felt and, and, and how I increased my strength and my power. It was something that I could control and can completely immerse myself in. And it was consistent from day to day. Uh, it didn't lie to me and never backed out on me. It was always there. It was something that I can depend on, um, to really give me, you know, give me a level of, of, of comfort with being uncomfortable. 
um, so to speak. So it, it, it filled a spiritual void, an emotional void, um, not only physically um, and helping me play my sport, um, but it was something I just gravitated towards. I, I was uh, relatively strong, um, and I say that relatively because we know how strength is. But I, I kind of gravitated toward towards it, and I would, with people at the the little high school that I was in in West Virginia, you know, I was the strongest one in the room, um, and, and, and that makes you feel good. I mean, at, at that age and, and those types of things, people like doing um, what they excel at. So I think that that alone was 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 crucial. Uh, not only in my development as a young man, but just the confidence that I derived from it. And that carried over to the field. I mean, it helped me play. Um, it helped me perform. But also it filled and checked a lot of voids and checked a lot of boxes for me as a human being as well. So it's something I still do now. It's my therapy. It's my release. Um, it's how I remain balanced and centered. Um, and it's just something that I do. So it is definitely a lifelong passion for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, the thing I think about when you were sharing that is that, you know, I, a similar thread as well. I mean, like you're trying to control for what is otherwise the non-controllables in, you know, youth sport. And that's that seemed to be an environment that a lot of coaches and a lot of other professionals gravitated to to help sort of provide some stability in, in a very chaotic time of a period of an athlete's life or a person's life. Um, but I, I'd love to kind of continue to try to. Uh, dive down this rabbit hole a little bit and sort of explore, if you will, I mean, if you feel comfortable for it. But if we were to sort of explore, I mean, like, did you have parents that really fostered that environment, that work ethic, that drive? Was it, the, you know, initially them sort of pulling, pushing you in that environment in the beginning or facilitating sort of that process of, hey, you know what, like, here's this weight room, you know, like, hey, kiddo, this is going to be a good thing for you. What was the what was sort of the conversations, the dialogues between your parents and the way that they might have pushed you or, or promoted it or championed it or if they didn't at all? Like I, like I referred to earlier with my brother, um, my dad and my mom were already kind of comfortable uh, with that with that lifestyle. And I remember my brother um, for Christmas, he used to get the metrics, uh, you know, packets of, 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 of protein powders and shakes and flex magazines and muscle mags and, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of bodybuilding was laying around the house. So we've always, I'd always been exposed, um, to that. And my parents were well-versed in, in experience of, of how to deal, um, with that subculture at the time, so to speak. Um, so my parents always fostered and cultivated an environment, uh, that, that really allowed their children, um, to really pursue and chase their dreams. Uh, both my mom and my dad, my grandfather, my grandmother, they all worked in factories. They worked at auto plants for general motors, um, blue collar jobs, hard jobs, um, jobs that require, you know, a lot of physical, uh, activity, uh, and a lot of grit and a lot of toughness. And, and they worked long, hard hours, um, to give, their kids, the tools they needed to be successful. Um, so when you have someone doing everything in their power to try to help and mold and help you grow, the only thing you can do in return is work and, and be grateful and honor that commitment they had to you. And we did that by committing and, and, and having high levels of character and trying to, you know, be the best kids we could be, whatever that was, whether it's baseball, softball, um, lifting weights. So, I mean, that was kind of a driving force um, to have that type of support system. Um, I'm truly blessed to have that because I deal with athletes on a daily basis that never had that. Um, and their motivation and their internal drives a little bit different. Their level of resilience and grit's a little bit different um, because of environment and upbringing. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm truly grateful that I had that type of support growing up. So they did foster that. 
No, no. And, I, and certainly as a, as a compliment, what I really admire from you, not only as a coach, but just as a, as a person really is the same sort of drive, the same sort of open, uh, environment that you've created. And you, you shared quite a bit as far as on Instagram and Twitter and elsewhere, just about that promotion, that acceptance with your own family. And, uh, and I, I think that's just an awesome environment as a father to be able to promote. And, you know, I have a four-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son, and it's that same sort of, uh, environment of not pushing, promoting, championing, encouraging, helping them pursue what they want to pursue, but providing sort of that work ethic that you get from your parents and, you know, not knowing uh, that sort of uh, family background, you know, by everything that you're saying, it seems representative of you passing that same worth that ethic that your parents taught you to your own uh, family, which is, is admirable and probably the very best thing that we could do more so than coaching uh, athletes, but being great fathers, being great husbands for the, the family and the children that we have. So definitely. And I, and I agree with that. And that's a great point. Um, I think for me personally, um, to get a vibe of where I'm coming from, you know, faith and family are the two most important things in my life. And those are the things that drive me uh, as a human being uh, and as a servant um, to not only my athletes, to my family. So my wife and my kids are the most important thing to me. Um, they're the reason I'm able to do what I do. Um, they've taught me patience. They've, they've, you know, taught me, uh, to be persistent with what I'm doing. And they've also provided me with perspective, um, to understand that, you know, I'm always undefeated in my daughter's eyes. Uh, they, they win and lose with us. They make sacrifices. My, my wife's a single mom, uh, nine to 10 months out of the year, um, because we're on the road. So I, I can't do anything without being extremely grateful, um, of the support and the unconditional love that, that my family has. So with the minimal time that I do have with them, I think it's important that we maximize, uh, the time that we do have. And, and that's my legacy. Um, my wife and my children's my legacy. My athletes are my legacy long after the rings and everything else fades, um, that's what's going to be, you know, kind of left over. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that and understand that's kind of, you know, we say it all the time, you know, to get the highest result at the least cost possible in training. But I think that applies to our life outside of coaching as well. Um, I signed up for this. They didn't. Um, yeah. So I, th I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was the point I was just going to illustrate is that, you know, it's, it's, pretty commonplace to to point back at yourself as a practitioner as a coach and and sort of say hey you know I'm self-made or you know all of this come at the hard work I do without acknowledging the sacrifices that people around you friends family children your faith everybody that that ultimately goes into allowing each of us whether it's an athlete or a coach to perform at their highest level and uh, I know that's an ultimate, ultimate sacrifice that a lot of families and, and people make and one that certainly, um, I think, needs illustration, you know, especially as young coaches get into this field about the, the dedication and the sacrifices and, and that full transparency of what it takes um, in some respects. But I want to shift this a little bit because I, you, you, you talked, you know, faith and family first. And I, I think sort of driven and, and the humbleness of what your family kind of keeps you as a coach but were there any other sort of instrumental mentors in your life that help sort of guide your path or shape your path that led you into strength and conditioning that taught you some lessons that really resonate to you today and, uh, and helped you essentially arrive at the position that you are at right now? 
I mean, we're all limited by our experiences and we're all at the role that we're in as a result of someone taking a chance on us. Um, and I've had a lot of great mentors along the way and I'm currently coaching under the influence of those mentors. Um, and these gentlemen and, and going back to, to Todd Hammer, who gave me my first opportunity without Todd Hammer answering an email that no one else would, uh, I wouldn't be in the position I am now because he led me to Tim Contos at VCU who hired me as a GA and then hired me, you know, as a full-time assistant, the first one in the program's history. And then from that standpoint, I met Daniel Roos um, and Shaka Smart and Anthony Grant. And then that relationship um, you know, motivated me and, and gave me the opportunity to pursue a position at the University of Tulsa. Um, another one reason why I was able to pursue the University of Tulsa was because Landon Evans, a guy at the time I'd only spoke with on the phone and talk shop, recommended me for that position. Then I get there, Rourke Cutchlow hires me, who's now at Missouri. Um, he hires me, he takes another job. Um, our basketball coach gets fired. Adam Davis comes in from Baylor. Uh, he molds me. Um, he makes me a better coach. He allowed me to make another jump. Um, and then coach Manning came in, who's had some of the biggest impact on my life. That's not only a, a great professional and a great coach, but just an outstanding man. Um, just a, a, a man that makes me better, um, as a human being that's been 100%, um, supportive of what we do. So in the turn, they, they've prepared me for the path. But my mentors along the way, they never held my hand. Um, they allowed me to make mistakes. Um, they allowed me to kind of find myself as a coach. Um, and they cultivated almost like a, a gardening approach to kind of leadership. They planted a seed um, and they let it grow and they tended to it. Um, but they never were overbearing. They made me comfortable um, with being uncomfortable. And at each stop, I've been able to kind of work on a certain aspect. And when I was at VCU, I, I became a better coach. I could experiment. I could train. I had 100% support and freedom in what I was doing. When I got to the University of Tulsa uh, with Rourke Cutchlow and then Adam Davis, Adam Davis made me a better administrator. He made me a better tactician. Uh, he made me more organized, um, more detailed, um, more consistent and committed to the process and, and, and demanding a standard that was reflective of our head coach's vision and values. Um, and then getting here and then Coach Manning has, has supported me 100%. I'm allowed to do the things that I do uh, because of our love and respect and support for each other. So I, I'm, I'm telling you what, I, I wouldn't be here without anybody else. I'm not self-made. Um, I've been a lot of, you know, I, I had a lot of people take chances on me. Um, and I remember way back, and I, I tell this to my assistant now, I had a lot of phone calls and the emails that went unanswered and unread. Uh, and no one replied back. Um, so I take a lot of pride in responding to people, to sharing information and to help fuel the future of this profession. I think that's the only way you need to pay it back and pay it forward. So that's a very important um, aspect of my life um, as, as a mentor, as a leader, as a coach, and as a servant. It sort of parallels my own sort of pursuit in that, you know, I think uh, my first position, there was 65 applications that went out and maybe had a response from four of them. And then two offers. So, you know, that's, it's, that's, that's three, that's three more than I got. So congratulations. <laughs> right. So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, and I get it being on the other end of it, how the, the, the work demands can be set you up. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a lot of people in our profession can accept that, but I think those that respond and those that make that communication and reach out, even if it's to say, Hey, you know, like we, we're, we fill the position, but appreciate your time, your support, your effort in, in applying or whatever it might be. Those are the people that you remember. Um, and those are the ones that, that certainly resonate. And 
And uh, as you share sort of your own pathway of the, the influences through your career um, from various stops and, and people that sort of stuck their neck out for you, to sort of juxtapose all of that with sort of maybe uh, a little foreshadowing, if you will, if AJ was, you know, let's say he's at the same position that you're at and it's now 10 years, 15 years into his career and he's answering that same question and he's going back and talking about, hey, this is my time at Wake Forest with, you know, Coach Horn. What what would it what would that conversation do you think would pertain to? I mean, what would you hope that is shared way that you've sort of mentored him um, and and continue to allow his coaching career to blossom and to learn. I mean, what, what might that conversation look like? You no, know, I, I think when AJ gets to that point uh, and he reflects back on his time that he spent with our staff and, and, and spent with me, number one, you know, I, I hope I made him a better man, uh, a better professional. Um, I hope he understands that, you know, and I hope he feels the fact that, you know, we love and support and we are invested in his growth and development development not only as a as a coach um, but as a human being um, and as a person that we provided tools and we had a relentless commitment not only to our athletes success um, but to his professional development and his growth so I think when he looks back at his time he he spent here I, I hope it it goes back to him learning that his profession is not about him um, it's about the athletes that we have to be grateful for those athletes and those sport coaches because without them um, we wouldn't have our role. We wouldn't have our position. I hope that his reach and his net that he has casted during those 10 to 15 years reaches far outside the weight room. Um, I hope that he continues to give back and to serve and, and, and to, to really promote the profession for the, for the phenomenal uh, things that are happening on a daily basis. I hope he continues to do that as well. And I hope he looks back and, and, and understands that you know, everything that we did, um, had a purpose, um, and it was driven by passion and, and driven by a commitment to him, uh, as a coach. So I think that if he understands anything from leaving here is to pay it forward, um, is to give another person that opportunity. If he can give a person an opportunity that we gave him, um, he came in as a summer intern. Uh, now he's a paid intern. Uh, if, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure we can make him a full-time coach, um, to have him by my side, um, but one thing I want to make sure that he knows is, is the fact that, you know, I, I hope that he looks up to me because I never looked down on him. Uh, and I hope and I hope he understands that. So, I mean, th- that's an emotional thing. That's an that's an attachment. But that's the type of investment I think we need to have in the people around us. And can we make them better? And we can we serve and help them grow? What really resonated with me is just that that personal investment and more so than just developing him as a coach, but developing uh, him as a, as a full person, um, which I think is, you know, you, you look at a lot of, uh, university opportunities around the country and it's, it's very easy to see sort of how this profession can be a, a thankless job. And that, you know, like we've all at some points in our career has done things that's, you know, it, it's part of the process of, of whether it's cleaning or maintenance or this or that or whatever, um, that seem to to go unnoticed. And then when you reflect back on it and you recognize how much those mentees and mentors really invested in you outside of those opportunities, I think that is uh, that is the ultimate privilege that, you know, a person can give. And then to be able to take that and the lessons that you've learned as a coach and be able to pass it forward and do the same for someone else and help pass that baton is our sort of ultimate responsibility as well. And, and, you know, that, that idea of paying it forward and, 
I, you know, again, I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because you've, you've helped me tremendously in the, uh, in the past as we were going through some technology acquisitions here at Wichita state. And you were one of the first persons that I reached out to as far as getting sort of a better understanding of some of these tools and some of this technology, just because of the sort of, uh, participation and the investment, uh, from a university standpoint into utilizing some of these tools and these tech, um, so, you know, I'd love to kind of maybe go down that road a little bit because I do think what what you're doing as a coach is amazing. But at the same time, I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't think that the, the technician aspect of what you're doing at Wake Forest is equally impressive. So there's a lot of touch points we could talk about in this. But, uh, you know, for someone that hasn't tuned in and, and seen your facility or, you know, I, I believe you guys are maybe breaking ground or already have broke ground at a new basketball facility as well. Um, you know what? Uh, if you could just sort of paint the picture of what Wake Forest looks like this year from a sort of training perspective and maybe some of the tools, the things that you're sort of looking at. But maybe big picture, you know, like where where is Wake Forest basketball preparation, strength conditioning going in the next couple of years as well? Yeah, I think along those lines, um, you know, it's been an organic process um, and our department and our program, our facility, um, our support and our resources are reflective of the head coach's vision. Um, and before we can go any further, um, if the head coach is not on board um, and completely invested and that aspect of preparation when it comes to monitoring, monitoring, excuse me, tracking technology, um, it's more likely um, to fall on deaf ears. It needs to be a driver um, in the decision making process in order for that to work. Um, one, we have to have a level of respect um, between coaches as far as credibility is concerned uh, and support is concerned. And then two, it has to be a part of our this big C word everybody talks about, but part of our culture. And by culture, what I mean by that is it, it's, it's a pattern of a behavior or a pattern of action um, that is expressed daily that ultimately leads um, to a greater purpose or a greater goal um, for what we have shared wise in our staff. So I think number one, uh, our head coach is extremely important. We do not have the things we have if it wasn't for his relentless commitment to our athletes um, and to their preparation. And our motto um, for athletic training staff um, that works with men's basketball um, and Greg Collins that's been here for a long time and our coaching staff and our performance staff is we want to protect and prepare these student athletes um, and protect not only their safety um, and their longevity and their availability and, 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 and focusing on that, but also too, uh, and having all the tools that have no excuse why they can't get better here. Um, when we tell people when they come on recruiting trips, you, if you can't get better here, you can't get better anywhere. Um, you have two coaches that are completely invested, um, in your success and your commitment, and you have a coaching staff that fosters that growth as well. Um, so from a technology standpoint, whether it comes down to catapult tracking or utilizing gym aware, um, force plate technologies, um, so on and so forth. These are just tools. Um, and we all know that the brush doesn't make the artists. We are coaches first. I would consider ourselves dual threats. 
um, because we have experience and exposure um, to some modern sport technologies. But that's not who we are. It's a part of our ecosystem. It's something that we do. Um, but we try to make sure that, that those type of tools and what we use are as non-invasive as possible, um, that are a part of our atmosphere and a part of an environment that doesn't serve as a distraction um, to what the – and you've said it already in this podcast. The number one tool and the greatest asset we can provide to our student-athletes is ourselves. Um, both as coaches, um, as practitioners, and as professionals. So when it comes to technology, we're not trying to necessarily um, add anything right now. We're just trying to get better at the things that we're doing. We're trying to maximize and learn from our mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes down the way. Um, I now have a little bit of experience. Early on, it was just exposure. Um, but We've made a lot of mistakes, but we've tried to learn and maximize those mistakes um, to generate progress and momentum um, moving forward. But we want to maximize the mundane. We want to make sure we attack the simple things savagely. Um, and we do that on a day-to-day basis that our standards consistent. If the standard isn't right in the weight room and the standard isn't right on the practice floor and within your staff, within your players, then all the tools and the gadgets and everything else isn't going to make a difference. Um, I think it's very important that we don't overlook that. So there's a lot of guys out there. I'm not a sports scientist and there's a lot of guys out there that are way better, um, at, at data visualization, uh, data mining, aggregation, um, on those types of things. But I think I know, I think we know who we are and we do that to the best of our abilities. And we're confident of that we know which hats fit and I'm not trying to wear 50 different hats. I know where my, I know where my lane is. I check my blinders. I know where I'm at. Um, but the same token, I understand what we're good at. And I understand what we do really, really well, and we try to maximize that. Um, so I think that's an important piece um, moving forward when you look and type any type of technology or anything else is to have that background in it. Um, but I think those are things that we look at. Well, you know, and I think you said it brilliantly, too, because uh, – and I don't know. <laughs> I think it's being used sort of ambiguously uh, – but or as maybe a buzzword at this point, uh, as things come in and out of vogue, if you will, but culture. And what I think that when you said that you guys are kind of a dual threat and that, you know, at first you had sort of the exposure to it. Now you've developed the experience using some of these technologies and tools that what you guys appear to do really, really well is to blend the culture into the uh, the techniques and the tools to make it less invasive, and I think that's that's an art. There's a skill to doing that as well, where uh, to to be able to facilitate both whether it's workload monitoring or readiness testing or training modalities in a way into your training session that allows for it to be organic, that allows for it to grow, that allows for it to be innovative. And I think you've done that incredibly well. Yeah. And I, and I think one too, like people that aren't on the front lines don't really see that in this environment. Um, you know, we're looking at workload monitoring, we're, we're monitoring training, stress balance. Um, we're looking at, you know, fatigue and fatigue management. Um, we're tracking, we're usually, we're using velocity based training, but the tools that are, or we are using, um, we have an understanding of them. Um, we continue to get better with them. But the, the analogy I like to use um, is basically when you're driving your car, you know, we see technology and monitoring and tracking as a way to reveal issues. Um, but training is what removes them. Um, so we've got a, a case of reveal and remove. I mean, training is still the foundation 
of what we do um, to per- prepare these kids so they can perform and then we can in turn protect them. Um, but technology is nothing more than a dashboard in a car. It, 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 it's your panel. When I'm driving my automobile or my truck, I'm not staring at the speed the entire time. I'm not looking at my fuel gauge the entire time. I, I'm, I'm, I'm intermittently checking those things as I drive, as I navigate, and as I kind of immerse myself into the environment. And then from that information, now I can make more informed decisions and have more actionable insight. Um, But I think that's important. I think coaches have to be, you know, creatures of context. We have to be able to provide context to these head coaches and provide them with quantifiable information and quantifiable benchmarks along the way to to serve them and help them devise practice plans, uh, return to play guidelines, return to performance guidelines that are more conducive, that are more, you know, beneficial to the student athletes. That's all we're really doing. Um, You know, and I think that's something that it often gets overlooked. Um, we can't forget the development and the preparation side. We've revealed what the information is. We know what the cost of doing business is. Now, how are we going to remove that uh, and how are we going to improve um, the student athlete to make them more robust and resilient, not only physically, um, but also mentally, spiritually and emotionally? You know, one of the things, too, uh, that I think you guys do well, and again, from an outsider looking in perspective, is you, you, you nailed it with the analogy with kind of the reveal and remove and training will never or technology will never take the place of great training. I mean, it is certainly the the paintbrush, if you will. But the artist that wields it ultimately dictates the art that gets uh, painted on the canvas. So but one of the things I think you you do well and you've you've alluded to it and you said it already is that to it takes a willingness of a head coach to understand to embrace these tools or to be able to first understand what it is and I think having those conversations with coaches to help sort of start that sort of either passive or very active education of what this means and and how we can use this and what does this information reveal to then allow it to become actionable sort of information with things that can actually make an intervention or a change to a training program. And I think as we start to see younger sport coaches, I say younger, right? Because, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be young. I mean, everybody can, can learn if they have that willingness to, but I believe, you know, and you've shared it on other podcasts that that you have a coach that's very willing and very sort of understanding and and the willingness to learn that you can share a conversation with what this information that you're assessing, gathering, collecting and evaluating what that means and how that translates to basketball performance or to push a little harder and find a window of opportunity or to then maybe have to pull back. I think that's a very important concept that a lot of people miss. And it seems like in your history at at Wake Forest and elsewhere, other stops. I mean, what has that always been a case? Was it just an interest from head coach to you or was it a passive sort of education as a team? Um, Can you describe a little bit of that sort of process? Yeah, I I think it's been, you know, we've learned together. Um, Our head coach and myself, I I think a lot of times what motivates that vision is either great success or some type of life altering kind of traumatic thing. If you have a rash of injuries um, or you have an unfortunate event that motivates people to push the envelope and step outside their comfort zone and find ways 
ways from keeping that from happening again. If you have great success, um, that fuels future successes and maybe that inspires or motivates them to kind of take that leap and invest in those type of products or those type of technologies or that relationship. But I think it's important to understand that, you know, relationships are going to become or are going to be, uh, are going to come before results. Um, I think that's important too. You have to build that relationship. You have to build that level of trust, respect, and credibility, and then understand your head coach. How we handle data, technology, monitoring here might not work elsewhere. Um, we've always tried to work to improve, not to impress with our head coach, and it's been an organic process. You know, we're not walking in the office and telling him what to do on a daily basis. Um, we're trying to give him thresholds and a framework for which to work in. But he, we have to allow them to really invest and make a commitment to it. Um, they, we can't nag them, but believing is just the beginning. Um, and I think they have to continue to, to become more comfortable with it as a coach. And each year, um, we have become more efficient. We became more effective um, because we've seen more things. We've experienced more things. We've made mistakes. We've had successes. We've had failures. Um, and those things have kind of built and generated this momentum uh, along the way. But, I mean, it's been that type of process. Um, we actually had an athlete, and I've talked about it every podcast. I think it's important. We had an athlete actually collapse and die on the court during a pickup game. His, his teammates watched him die. Um, and luckily they were able to resuscitate that student athlete. Um, but that was a conversation. I think that was the turning point. I look back at a pivotal moment that really resonated with our head coach. And that was it. Um, that near death experience or actually the die and come in resurrect experience. Um, that's what motivated him to come to, to us to sit down and say, what can we do? This is bigger I have a great responsibility. He has a great responsibility. Now, what can we do? Where can we invest? How can we really make a commitment daily and be disciplined with our approach to protect and prepare our student athletes and put their livelihood and their well-being at the forefront? And I think he's done a phenomenal job. Um, we still have emotional days. We still uh, we still have days where I walk in the office and and it's like, hey, today we need to do this. And okay, all right, and then we'll we'll play damage control and we'll clean it up later. But we've completely immersed ourselves in the staff. We've completely immersed ourselves as a part of this this organization and a part of this structure. And we've done our best to try to educate um, and disperse that information in a way that makes sense to the to the coaches and provides the sticky dialogue needed um, to foster that future change and growth. You don't have to look too far, especially in America, as far as programs that are doing things incredibly well. And I, I think you're a, you're humble to say that, uh, certainly, but uh, you, know, you don't have to look too far away from uh, to, to recognize that real recognizes real and Wake Forest is certainly doing a tremendous, tremendous job. And uh, and with that, I, I think it sort of lends itself to my sort of next series of questions. But I what it, in your experience, I guess, what is maybe some of the potential downsides of of being perceived as successful? I think, you know, as a young coach or as a person in the field, that's you know, that sort of equates technology to having all of the various tools in your uh, toolbox that you have available for you. Um, what are the what are the unintended consequences? What are the things that, you know, someone that isn't privy to these resources might not understand uh, that maybe the grass isn't greener on, on the other side? I think one thing we got to start off with, and I think people, you know, it's important for me to for, for coaches to understand this, if the power went out today and we couldn't use Catapult and we couldn't use Gymware um, and we couldn't do those things, we'd still be okay uh, because we've never used it 
as a crutch. We've never let it define us as, as who we are as coaches. It's a part of what we do, um, but it's not what we do. And it's success in anything, even with the season we've had this year. Um, we had two years that we were we were we were not very successful uh, on the floor. And ultimately, as a as a strength conditioning coach, how are we evaluated? You know, how how are we deemed successful? Because from the outside. Um, from the strength conditioning world, they might say because of the resources or the tools that we have that we are successful. Um, but from the inside, you know, I'm more likely to get uh, reassigned or, or fired based on win percentage than I am player availability. Um, so, so how are we defining success? And then with any type of success, the potential, the potential downfalls of success, you know, are, are, are simple. Just like with our athletes coming back now, I mean, you you don't want to be too satisfied. You don't want to become complacent. You don't want to become comfor- uh, comfortable. You don't want to have so much success that you lack the resilience to deal with future adversity because we are going to fail. Uh, we are going to have issues. We are going to have speed bumps. Now, what have we done um, to prepare ourselves for that understanding that we need to acknowledge it and then attack it? Um, and that's what we do daily. We need to understand that what we don't attack will attack us. We need to acknowledge those potential downfalls on, on a continuous basis and then keep our standard and keep elevating our standards. So where we're at, I mean, the, the excellence podcast, I mean, this is kind of like excellence decoded. Like what is excellence? Excellence is operating above the standard on a daily basis with great commitment and high character. I mean, that's what success is. And that's what excellence is. It's doing things the way they need to be done when they need to be done. And not only when you feel good about it, 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 it requires that type of accountability that requires that type of discipline. So I think those are potential downfalls of success in any field. It's just becoming full, you know, lacking the humble, you know, not being humble, not being hungry and just being satisfied with where you're at. We can be content. I'm happy to be at Wake Forest. I love being here. I want to be here. I'm invested in this program. But at the same time, I can't become complacent. We have to continue to be relentless and push the envelope, and we're doing that. We're not great at everything. I just did our conference schedule yesterday. We got eight clinics lined up from the time May comes all the way till August. We're speaking. We're attending clinics. We're doing certifications. We're pushing ourselves, and we're you know we're periodizing our development as coaches as well so we can better serve our student-athletes. And that's the thing I think people don't really understand at times is if you serve your student-athletes, you serve your staff, you will get everything you need to be in return because in the end, it's not about you. So then you have to have that type of perspective that we get to coach every day. I woke up this morning fired up because I get an opportunity to come in and train in this weight room that I have this logo on my chest and I can do that. And that's important to me. And that's what drives my consistency and my commitment and our staff's commitment um, to being the best we can be on a daily basis and, and holding these athletes to that standard. And I think you said it. What uh, what really resonates is that you get the opportunity. You have the opportunity to come in and be blessed with the resources, the opportunity to train athletes and be at a great place like that. It's not that you uh, you have to. Right. And just changing the the paradigm shift or the the conversation from. That you uh, that you're you're blessed to have the opportunity, not that you necessarily have to do it, is uh, is is important. Yeah, yeah, but even that word humble. I mean, what does humble mean? I mean, uh, you know, humble being humble is not a self defeatist type attitude. Being humble is giving gratitude and giving thanks and credit to the people that are responsible um, to where you're at now. That's what being humble is, uh, and I don't think it's a thing where you lack self worth. Uh, it's it's an understanding that you're going to acknowledge. Um, and give credit um, to the people that allow those things to happen. So I think just that simple tweak in perspective 
um, can generate, um, you know, big dividends. You talked about sort of your own staff development and periodization and your, your busy conference schedule, like many professionals have at the end of the year. Uh, I would love to hear, I mean, I know that you, uh, your staff is traveling around, you're presenting, um, which is a nice little segue into talking about, um, the basketball high performance symposium, uh, that, uh, the great crew out there does. But uh, do, you, do you have any sort of sneak peeks as far as something that the audience listening to this Decoding Excellence podcast can uh, anticipate when you guys head out there and, and chat? I, I think our biggest thing when we go to clinics and we go to symposiums and seminars and we present and we speak, if we're presenting, uh, our main goal um, is to basically show people what we do, when we do it, um, how it gets done. And, and present it in a way that's genuine uh, and that's generous with information. And, and in the end, we're, we're just as transparent and as honest as possible. So when we go in to a clinic to present or to speak, um, that's our staff's goal. Um, we don't have all the answers. All we can do is provide a window into the house that we've built so you can walk around and take a look. And then you got to take that information and apply it to your own program and your own situation. Um, but it's our job to open the door, not to utilize a peephole. So a little peephole door open analogy, you know, let's, let's just open the door. Let's pe- let people in. Let's be inviting um, and let's be hospitable with the, with the attendees or with the people that visit our facility. Our door is always open. Um, I think that's our goal. When we share and we present, um, that's what we're doing. We're sharing. Um, we're teaching. Uh, we're trying to help others grow. And then what also makes us better as coaches because we get our, uh, our thoughts and our ideas down on paper. So when we teach, we learn twice. Um, and if we're attending the conference, I'm going there to be pushed. Uh, AJ's going there to be pushed. I want to be uncomfortable. And, and I want to be in a situation where it forces me to grow. Um, and without a little bit of friction, you don't get fired. So I want to go somewhere that frustrates me, that that makes me dig deeper um, for, for myself from a professional development standpoint. So I think, you know, even the Vegas, one of the best aspects about going out to Vegas every year with Charles Stevenson and the crew out there is that it's practical and it's open and it's a great experience. You leave feeling a part of a group um, that is completely invested in what you want to do. You know, I'm doing a practical demonstration, so we'll cover some training aspects there, but I want to give something people can take home and utilize in their program almost immediately. You're speaking there. Uh, jo- uh, uh, Coach Bonatal speaking there from Purdue. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal lineup. Daniel Roos from Texas. I mean, there's a ton of coaches that are going to be there um, that are open, that are honest, and that I have – I mean, I respect you guys a ton and and I'm humbled and honored to be on the floor with you. So I think it's going to be a great event. Um, You know, we have a lot of conferences kind of coming up, uh, but that's our goal. We look at professional development. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build relationships, not network. Um, Networks basically having a business card. Relationships are having a phone call um, and having a memorable, lasting impact on somebody in that 30 seconds or that hour and that dinner that you're with them. So that's the overall tone when we hit the seminar road and it becomes conference season. Likewise. And and one of the things you've said in the past, whether it's, uh, I don't know if it was on Instagram or on Twitter or elsewhere, but uh, really resonated so much so that I have it in my journal, uh, that rising tides raise all ships. And when you go out to the conference, I just want as one coach to another to say that the work that you do raises all the ships. So continue championing that. And I, I appreciate the work you do. I um, and the, the information you share. And, and as you said, sort of the, the peephole versus door open uh, analogy. If 
if this audience isn't already following, and it's again not not necessarily about the follow, but just to understand the behind the scenes look at what you're doing, I think you're you're a uh, and Brett Bartholomew on the show shared shared this is that you know if you're doing it in a good hearted position to share, to reveal, to help, to educate, to push, to challenge, then that's great intentions, and the, that's what we should have as coaches. And I look at the work that you share uh, in in the same intentions as anybody else would. It's to share, it's to educate, it's to provide a glimpse into the hard work and what you guys are doing and uh, and provide uh, an opportunity to see something done a little bit different in a different context. And, uh, you know, I know you've hosted a couple uh uh, Instagram lives. And, you know, I popped in on a couple of them in between training sessions and you're answering Q and A's for as far as internships goes and things go from facilities. And I just don't think that, uh, that there's as many people in the profession that does it as well as you, that champions helps educate, helps push young coaches, um, and helps raise the professional standards of our industry. So from one coach to another, thank you. And, uh, for those that are listening to this, you can follow, uh, Coach Horn at RyanHorn45 on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you throw some good stuff and great materials on both. Um, as we as we wrap this up, do you do you have any sort of last sort of request of anybody that's that happened to listen through us sort of uh, work our way through 55 minutes or so of this podcast and the show? Any sort of uh, resounding takeaways or requests of the audience? No, I, I, I think when we look at the show and, and we before we got on this call and, and you and I were kind of discussing, you know, what was our goal um, with this discussion um, and, and this podcast and. And I think for me is, is you have to understand what drives a man or a woman, you know, what's their driving force, you know, who, they, who are they, you know, what wakes them up in the morning, what keeps them going, um, what type of personality and what type of conviction do they have for what they do. So when we look at this podcast uh, and I've done, you know, numerous podcasts on different subjects and different topics. And, and I know we didn't get too technical uh, into a lot of training modalities, whether it's flywheel training, whether it is technology. Um, and we stayed away from some of those points for a reason, um, to kind of get a measure of, of who the staff is as people, um, who we are as humans and, and kind of what drives us. And I think overall, um, when all is said and done, you know, that's going to be our legacy and, and that's reflective in what we do from a social media standpoint. Um, you know, I'm just trying to put information on there. I'm trying to pay it forward and, and answer as many questions and messages and, and, and emails and visits and things that I can to maximize the platform that I have. I'm not going to have this platform forever. You know, it could be taken away from me tomorrow. Who knows? Um, but while I have it, I want to be able to utilize it to touch and affect as many people um, that we can in that short amount of time. So I think that's definitely, you know, something I want people to take away from this is that, you know, that we truly respect and, and are grateful and thankful for all the support, um, all the followers, all the kind messages, those little messages that, hey, th- you know, this means the world to me or, or coaches saying thank you or I love this. Thanks for putting this out. I mean, that that really that that really makes my day uh, and that really allows me to take a step back and realize, you know, the type of impact we can utilize this profession for and have on people. And, and that's always been, you know, my goal and our goal. Uh, as a staff and as a unit. So I think that's important to recognize um, moving forward. But I've met so many people without social media, you 
and I probably never would have discussed. I don't write articles. I don't do studies, things of that nature. Um, so this is my way of giving back. But I've met so many people. I visit so many places and developed so many long lasting relationships as a result of this platform and these people. So I think it's important uh, that people understand that attitude of gratitude and how, and how much it's had an impact on us, not even, not even the people that are following. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And thank you for just the willingness to share what you do. And like you said, I mean, social media, I believe, is sort of the vehicle, the first vehicle that gets you uh, to, to be exposed to a certain person. And then from there, it's the conversations and the relationships that you build, not the networking, but the relationships and the phone calls and the, the site visits that go uh, that expand outward from that first initial reaction interaction. So, yeah. And I hate, I hate to cut you off, but one more thing I, I think too, like before we get out of here, like you talked about our path as coaches, I think, you know, we're preparing these athletes, not only for the path they're currently on, but also when that, for us, when that ball stops bouncing, uh, I, I think coaches just shouldn't underestimate the impact that you have lifelong, uh, on these kids when they come back and they, and they reminisce and they visit, we have a very, uh, crucial time during their lives to have a resounding uh, and long-lasting impact on them. So don't take that for granted. Um, there's not too many people that have this type of opportunity to, to mentor young athletes and, and men and women on a daily basis.